It's hard to believe that it took seven days this month to get to a Wednesday, the first of four in April. This is April 7th, to be precise, and we are still in 2021, and will be for another 269 days. More to the point, I'm Sean Tubbs, and this is another installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement, bringing you sonic highlights of some of what's happened lately in these busy times that we live in. On today's show, the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority adopts its budget for fiscal year 22. Albemarle Supervisor Diantha McKeel announces a bid for a third term representing the county's most dense district. The TomTom Foundation explores ascension in the black community. The Blue Ridge Health District will move to phase two on April 12th, and Charlottesville City Council takes a first step toward repealing its COVID ordinance. In today's Substack-fueled shout-out, Code for Charlottesville is seeking volunteers with tech, data, design, and research skills to work on community service projects. Founded in September of 2019, Code for Charlottesville has worked on projects with the Legal Aid Justice Center, the Charlottesville Fire Department, and the Charlottesville Office of Human Rights. Visit the Code for Charlottesville website to learn more, including details on several projects that are underway. The Blue Ridge Health District will open up vaccine appointments to all residents under the age of 16. Dr. Denise Bonds gave an update to City Council on Monday. The governor has asked that um, all uh, health districts um, be in phase two by April 18th, uh, and so we will certainly meet that, and I really expect that we'll exceed that uh, moving into phase two, uh, certainly by the beginning of next week. Just minutes after Dr. Bonds finished her presentation, BRHD announced on their Facebook page that they would indeed open up to Phase 2 on Monday, April 12th. Dr. Bonds encouraged people to register on vaccinatevirginia.gov and for people in Phase 1A, 1B, and 1C to schedule their shots now. Later in the meeting, Council held the first reading of a repeal of its local COVID-19 ordinance, which was adopted last July, shortly before University of Virginia students began to arrive back in town. Councilor Heather Hill requested the item be on the agenda. Separately from the governor's executive orders, the city's local ordinance continues to impose local restrictions on the number of persons allowed in food establishments. I, I have concerns, and I don't think I'm alone, that there are things, um, as things progress relative to reopening over the next you know, several months, there continues to be confusion and discrepancies between what is being directed at the, both the state and local level. That has meant that the council has had to update its ordinance a couple of times in order to align with the state's executive orders. Governor Northam's Executive Order 72 was last updated on March 23rd. Councillor Michael Payne has been opposed to previous attempts to repeal the ordinance, but he has since changed his mind. At this point, if the only difference is the in-person dining, it seems like it's at a point where it's it's not really even enforceable at this point. Um, and just for clarity, with the vaccine rollout beginning and just the clarity of the rules, it may be better to, at this point to just go with the state-level ordinances. Mayor Nakaya Walker said she would not support the repeal and cited concern about the potential for another surge. I think that we are still um, feeding into what we wish our um, current state would be versus what, um, you know, where we actually are. 
A second reading of the repeal vote will come back to the council at another meeting. Walker requested it be on the regular agenda rather than the consent agenda. Today, the Virginia Department of Health reports that 18.8% of Virginians are fully vaccinated, and the seven-day average for doses per day is now 78,785. VDH also reports another 1,505 new cases today, and the seven-day percent positivity is at 6.2%. There have now been 206 COVID deaths in the Blue Ridge Health District. Albemarle Supervisor Diantha McKeel took to the steps of the county office building in downtown Charlottesville Tuesday morning to announce her campaign to seek a third term representing the Jack Jewett District on the Board of Supervisors. Four years ago, I promised collaborative work in regional partnerships to strengthen business retention and expansion to create mid-level job opportunities, to integrate land use and multimodal transportation improvements strengthen our investment in public safety services, expand affordable housing, and create a community resiliency plan to address the damaging impacts from climate change. McKeel said that since she has been on the board, the county has developed a focus on economic development with a dedicated office devoted to the task. She also pointed to the creation of the Regional Transit Partnership. McKeel said if she is elected to a third term, she will continue to work on connectivity and continue to advance the goal of community resiliency. I'd also like to give a shout out to the community for their patience and flexibility in working with us over the last year. McKeel is the first candidate this year to announce on the steps of the county office building, a traditional spot for people to launch their bids in Albemarle County. She said after a year of virtual meetings, she wanted to make a statement with her socially distanced announcement. I chose to do this um, announcement not over Zoom or Facebook, but to do it uh, in person because I've missed seeing everybody and I've missed being out. And I think with our social distancing right now, we can do it safely outside. McKeel said she has lived in the Jack Dewitt district for over 40 years. When she arrived, Albemarle was like a bedroom community for Charlottesville, particularly in her district. Now she said, things are different. It really has changed. Um, the Jewett district is the smallest district geographically, but we're the densest district because we have, if you think about it, the, uh, many of the apartment complexes and um, we're sort of in that, what I call the urban ring area. Certainly there are other urban rings in other magisterial districts, but we have the densest. The seats in the Samuel Miller District and Rio District are also up this November. Liz Palmer will not seek a third term in the Samuel Miller District. Jim Andrews is on the ballot in the June 8th Democratic primary, as is Ned Galloway for the Rio District, seeking a second term. The Greene County Board of Supervisors has voted to formally request Madison County and Orange County to release Greene County from the Rapidan Service Authority. All three counties are members of the RSA, and there is a disagreement about whether to proceed with a new reservoir to serve Greene. Last summer, the RSA blocked the use of facility fees paid by Greene ratepayers to pay for the project, which has a permit from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. County Administrator Mark B. Taylor explained at a special meeting on Monday night that the RSA is now willing to let Green go, but there is a process. RSA board last week is that we and 
uh, come back to the Board of Supervisors and ask for a resolution to be passed to reinitiate uh, or reactivate our request to withdraw from the Rapid End Service Authority. Green County is at a situation of wanting and needing to withdraw or depart uh, by whatever means from the Rapid End Service Authority. The special meeting was held on Monday in order to get the item on the agendas of the Madison and Orange boards. The Greene County Board of Supervisors will be briefed on the status of litigation against the RSA at a closed meeting next week. The fiscal year for the Charlottesville Redevelopment and Housing Authority began on April 1st, and the Board of Commissioners formally adopted a budget at their meeting on March 30th. A week before, they had discussed the possibility of ending a $240,000 contract with Century Force Security for security patrols of CRHA properties. Brandon Collins, an employee of the Public Housing Association of Residents, got right to the point in the public comment period at the March 30th meeting. We know that the, the big question before you is uh, what to do about the security contract um, and the massive amount of money you're spending for security that um, from y'all's perspective and from many residents' perspective um, is not really accomplishing much. Tim Sansone, the president of Century Force Security, once again appeared to make the case for his company to continue being paid to patrol CRHA properties. Um, since we last met last Monday, uh, there's now over 167 incidents that have occurred since January, um, uh, since we started. That's an increase of 20 since last Monday's meeting. Sansone said Century Force personnel had also stopped patrolling at Crescent Halls and were instead focusing on checking IDs, a decision made after discussion with CRHA Director John Sales. During the discussion of the budget, Sales said he put two positions in the document to pay for CRHA employees to run the door at Crescent Halls. But he also said CRHA is on track to set aside enough reserves to meet a requirement from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development by the end of fiscal year on March 31st, 2022. Um, HUD has us meeting it in two years, so we'll beat that by a year, which is really nice. Um, so that will get us out of trouble status for our financial situation. Before the vote, much of the discussion was about the security issue. Sales said a community group called the Buck Squad has been patrolling the area. So I think the, the Buck Squad is actively working in the communities already, um, even without having a contract or anything in place. There is $133,000 in the fiscal year 22 budget for a line item called tenant protection. The CRHA Safety Committee will determine how the money in that budget is spent, and it could involve the Buck Squad or Peace in the Streets being paid. Commissioner Lisa Green, who joined the CRHA board last summer, said she was concerned these groups' work might not be sustainable. And this is why I feel like some of this was formed on emotion from the death of someone, and I'm concerned that the momentum can keep going when that emotion starts to disseminate. I do think what is being done is extremely admirable. And, and a, a, you know, we talk about thinking outside of the box a, a lot. Dr. Alilia Henry, 
a resident who was also on the CRHA board heard that concern, but felt that those groups would have staying power. A lot of the folks involved in the book squad have also been involved in generational issues involving crime within the, this very community. And so I think that's why they feel somewhat closer to what's going on. The contract with Century Force will end in May. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement. This patron-supported public service announcement is from an anonymous supporter. Do you want to support your public library by picking up a mystery bag of books? The Friends of the Jefferson Madison Regional Library are resuming their pop-up book sale this Sunday at the Gordon Avenue Library. For $5, you can pick up a sealed, pre-selected bag, choosing from mystery, popular fiction, literary fiction, classic literature, biographies, sci-fi, or fantasy. The JMRL pop-up sale is this Sunday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Gordon Avenue Library. You can learn more on the website in the newsletter. Including today, there are still two more days in the TomTom Foundation's Race and Equity Summit, which has the name From the Classroom to the Boardroom. Last Tuesday, the first panel dealt with how art and community can play a role in lifting up the black community. Sarad Davenport, the first executive director of City of Promise, was the moderator for Ascension, joining together to rewrite the code. He explained how the concept came up during the program's development. You know, what's going on, who's doing amazing things, and and this concept of Ascension came up, and who's like innovating at a high level and taking the community um, to new levels that um, have never been seen before, and who can offer insight to the rest of us. One of the panelists was Lisa Woolfork, who has risen to notoriety for her work advancing the art and science of sewing through her Instagram and podcast. Black Women's Stitch is the sewing group where Black Lives Matter, and the Stitch Please podcast is an extension, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch. And Stitch Please podcast centers Black women, girls, and femmes in sewing. Now, this might sound like a very niche type uh, podcast, which I which I believe it is, but it reflects the larger need for Black women, girls, and femmes to see ourselves, to be centered, to build community with one another and among one another. Wolfork said she did not see anyone else doing the work, so she took it upon herself to create the platform to craft a community based in creativity. That is based in creativity but also um, is also committed to racial justice and black liberation and radical self-love. These are things that all work together in how we operate as a project. Wolfork said at the end of 2019, she was approaching 10,000 downloads of the show. At the end of 2020, I was like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get 100,000 downloads? That would be like 10 times the amount that we started with. Wouldn't that be great? And at the end of the day, we ended up with 125,000 downloads. Sahara Clemens was a guest on the September 9th, 2020 edition of Stitch Please and went next on the Ascension panel. Sarah Davenport asked her a question. Sahara, I want you to talk about you know, how long you've been doing art professionally. I know you've been doing art a long time and how it kind of led up to that point. Um, And, you know, what are some places that your art has been displayed or exhibited? Um, And just, you know, talk generally about your approach to to art and innovation in general. 
I think that my approach to art is really centered around, or it started looking at the intersectionality between being a woman and being Black, and um, also just my, my love of fashion and apparel um, and how those things kind of mesh together in creating works that really highlight Black women in um, these pops of color and, and these um, designs of these clothings that I work into the paintings themselves to create this holistic narrative um, of, of lifting these people up in a way that I feel like hasn't been shown in this, in this um, particular light. The final panelist is William Jones, the creator of The Prolific Run Crew, which organizes early morning runs through Black neighborhoods three days a week. According to an article in Runner's World that was published on March 23rd, Jones moved to Charlottesville in 2009. Davenport sets up this introduction. Oftentimes, Charlottesville doesn't necessarily get good press in some of these national publications, but you know, um, the prolific run crew was a bright light in um, other um, national um, media organizations like Running Magazines recently did a, a feature on you all. And just to set it, set it off for the prolific run crew, tell, tell the people who might not know about kind of like the origins and the conception of the prolific run crew movement. It started just from running, um, honestly. I never really paid attention that running was like in there the way that I understand it to be in there now. Um, but in my journey to Virginia, I stopped in Maryland for a week or two. But when I was there, I got to see black people living really healthy lifestyles. Um, and part of that was running like they were just for no reason running on the street. And that seemed really weird to me. But when Jones got to Charlottesville, he did not see black people running. He worked at a barber shop on Cherry Avenue and was able to see people in the community. He later moved to a shop on Emmett Street that was not the same. I was a little more disconnected. I was only seeing my clientele, but I wasn't able to like just see the young boys walking down the street and stuff. So unconsciously, I, I just like to fix that, I just would go out at night park at first street and i would just connect all of the hoods i would first street through sixth street through garrett and i would just run this route um that one day i took west bellamy on with me and it whooped him and he was like man this is dope though because i have I, you know i live in charlottesville and i know these communities but i've never run through them jones said if he had grown up in charlottesville he would have grown up in these neighborhoods he needed to run on the streets to ground himself in the community. Working at a barber shop, he began to invite people. So I would invite brothers to come out and run like, yo, y'all want to do something? Let's take care of ourselves. And I would invite brothers so, so many times that some of them just came. During the pandemic, the idea took off. Videos were posted on Instagram and the number of people running grew. I think white people were really looking for something to do with their energy um, to help answer some of the injustice issues that were going on um, and to like put their energy somewhere to better learn about the community that they don't know. And I think this Black-led run group just fit. You can watch the rest of that presentation on the TomTom Tom Foundation's YouTube page. The Classroom to Boardroom Race and Equity Conference continues through Thursday.
The entire thing is available to watch on YouTube. And that's it for this installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement for April 7th, 2021. Thank you very much for listening. And um, if you benefited from this project, now you know what I'm going to say. I say it the same, I say pretty much the same thing every time, but it's the same message. Uh, if you have a couple of dollars to spare and you would like to support this program to make sure it keeps going, please, you can consider subscribing through Substack. You can make a donation through Patreon, which is always very useful. There's also Venmo, Zelle. Uh, I don't yet take any subscriptions through Passenger Pigeon, but, but it's possible that could happen one day. Um, but even if you can't, if you can't make anything like that right now, please send it on to somebody else. Post a Facebook message about it. Share it on Twitter. I don't really do Instagram, but if somebody wants to help me figure out how to do that. TikTok, though. TikTok and I, well, all right, I'm going to have to learn TikTok one day. But right now the clock is ticking. I got to get it going. Um, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another installment. I'm Sean Tubbs, your host. Thank you very much and stay safe out there.